This is the land you're on. Acknowledging the Haudenosaunee. Interviews and conversations with indigenous community members and allies. Providing the context needed to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. This episode is the third in a series of three surrounding papers from the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. They were presented to a small group of scholars, faculty, staff, and alumni in the Boathouse at Minnebrook Conference Center in the Adirondacks. We are jumping in our time now a little bit. We are jumping to at least the year 1898, maybe a little later. Um, so let me just show you the... It's, what's it? Almost 100 years, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. What I would do first is I would just go through the document real quick and, and explain to you what is in there. I don't want to read through 25 pages, so, yeah. you know, so um, that's why I wrote down essentially, you know, the content and then we can zoom in where we, where we want to. So the context seems to be that the Onondaga uh, learning that a Thomas Webster, um, the son of the wampum keeper, had given away, sold away certain wampum belts. And uh, the Onondaga trying in a lawsuit late 19th century here um, to regain these, um, these wampum belts. So the context is that uh, Thomas Webster had given away these, um, these belts and the Onondagas uh, arguing that he was not authorized to do, to do so. So we have an intro in the first, the first page is more or less an intro. Uh, in the second page, they're just uh, explaining the nature of wampum belts, what wampum belts actually are. Should we touch upon that real quick now? The, the, the meaning and function of wampum belts within Haudenosaunee culture? Our wampum belts are a way that we recorded all of our history, all of our um, important um, events that happened throughout the course of, of our history. They're made from Diane the Shenandoah children. is a faith keeper Pohawk of the United Nation Wolf Clan. So many of the belts that you see today that are that are in uh, in some of the New York State collections, you'll see the darker purples, the whites mm -hmm. that represent certain things. And also this is how our history is retold through the reading of the wampum belt. So they're pretty powerful and, and very meaningful to our people. The, the, the deeper history behind that is that, or so it's said, that each wampum keeper was also a wampum reader. And that they, in order to hold the wampum, they had to be knowledgeable of that wampum in order to be able to recite and read all of it. So in essence, they would be the librarian or the bookkeeper that would be able to, as you're saying, read all the pages mm -hmm. and recite all of the history mm -hmm. to those that would come to them and ask them about the belts. And they would also be in charge of caretaking those belts and bringing them out at the necessary and appropriate times for different meetings or different things that were going on. Neil Paulus, Onondaga Nation, you know, Eel Clan. One single bead would take over 40 to 50 hours yeah. to drill a hole and then shape that one bead. And then you think of our some of our belts, the uh, the Great Love Peace Belt, the High Wanta Belt, right? The belt you see as a flag yeah. on at Syracuse University campus is made up of over 2,500 beads. 
So if you're thinking about the man hours, the, the individual hours, man hours, the work hours mm -hmm. that it took our people to make the beads, then to string them together mm -hmm. using the sinew of the deer, mm -hmm. right? And then to continue to repair. Yeah. That's what the wampum keeper's duty was, was not only just to care, take it, but to repair it and to maintain its integrity. And when we got married, we had to hold the wampum in our hand and make that promise to each other. Which, which belt did you guys have to, to hold? Each ceremony has its own I mean, so it was strands. For that. And they yeah. were used so commonly, like along the East Coast. It was more than just the Haudenosaunee who used them, but you know all the other nations. And um, even Washington would have them made. So we talk about the Canadian Treaty one, but he was making them before then mm -hmm. and sending wampum belts out to other nations along the East Coast with all the different leaders that he was meeting with. Michelle Shenandoah, Oneida Wolf Clan, is the editor of Rematriation Magazine. You can find on longreads.com mm -hmm. about um, Washington's world. I don't remember the name of the title, but all this is in there. Something like Washington's world was actually really quite, you know, indigenous or Indian or whatever, like something like that. But. It, it paints the reality, you can see the reality of his experience versus the one that's painted in history books where, you know, he just lives in this, you know, very white dominated space and empty lands and all is great, right? So. Since you mentioned the Canandaigua Treaty and the belt, can you guys talk a little bit more about that belt? Because it will be mentioned in this plaintiff brief. Robert Porter actually did a training uh, over during COVID <laughs> where he actually presented and talked about the Canandaigua Treaty um, as a means of maintaining that peaceful relations between a then weakened, uh, struggling, uh, unified colonies, mm -hmm. the 13 colonies, right? Uh, and recognizing and understanding that even though all of the Sullivan-Clinton campaign experience had, had really put uh, a heavy toll on, on the Haudenosaunee as a confederacy, uh, still recognized that if, if need be and the nations came back together, that the colonies would have a hard time existing as they were creating them. Mm -hmm. So he, he sent that belt to the Haudenosaunee to maintain a peace between these tracts of land, right? So he was trying to find a way of peaceful relations because there were continued attacks, uh, indigenous or non, or non onto indigenous, uh, as they infringed on those lines. Could you please describe what's what's seen on that belt? Well, well the, the belt itself is is actually uh, it's 13 colonies, so it's 13 beings. Uh, men, I guess, with hats, all holding hands, right? And in the center of that belt is um, two other beings with a house in the middle, uh, and that represents uh, the, the Haudenosaunee as a, as a member of this uh, equal party to all of this and, and the relationship and peacefulness that he was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so it, you know, every November, Right? Yeah. There's still a celebration in Canandaigua to commemorate that relationship uh, because in it, it validates and verifies the sovereign uh, existence mm -hmm. of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. 
another belt, the Tuaro Wampum belt, mm-hmm. like Aswenta, with the Dutch, right? Uh, which was to travel the river of life, um, one purple strand represent, or row representing the Haudenosaunee indigenous people in their canoe, and then the other purple representing the Europeans coming in their boat or their ship, right? And that we live in, th- in peacefulness, uh, tranquility, and, and togetherness, friend- friendship, right? And so there's this, and, and that's a decent sized belt as well, right? Um, and so there's this commemoration of that relationship. Uh, and, and that's really the first place you kind of see or you hear from the European perspective uh, this desire to want to refer to indigenous people as sun or or below, um, and this dialogue that goes on that says, no, we will refer to each other as brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where the phrase, you know, for as long as the grass is green and the, and the water flows downhill and the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, so this shall be. Yeah. And so that's really kind of where, in the very beginning of our relationship, we said, you have your journey and your path. We have our journey and our path, and we will travel this path together. We will live these lands together in peacefulness and harmony and togetherness um, and friendship, right? And so whether it was uh, polishing the covenant chain, so to speak, of that relationship with every nation that came after them, mm-hmm. we expected that the Dutch would share that and tell every other nation that came, this is a Haudenosaunee stance and this is what you are coming into their lands and this is what they expect. Mm-hmm. And so we expected the same from the American government to tell every frontier person the agreement that they had made with that treaty and the boundary lines that were set forth mm-hmm. from the Fort Stanwix Treaty after the American Revolution. And that continued. And even the track map that you showed is an example of how that treaty was broken. So then it gets broken, we get parceled off into a square, and then people infringe on that space, we defend that space, and then there's battles, and that, right? And so then you have the, the Canandaigua Treaty coming out of mm-hmm. that space to defend and create the peace between the coming settlers, right? But even during that time, you have this letter that you showed that says, no, we want that land too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, you know, Washington using an image of a of a fixed chain, essentially, like that is the people that are lined up and holding hands together. That's a reference our people have been using for generations, and it goes back to the Great Law of Peace. Mm where the peacemaker, when we brought that peacefulness together, mm-hmm. we, the, the peacemaker had asked these war chiefs to break a single arrow and they were able to snap it and then he handed them bounded arrows, right? And asked them to bend, that to break it and they would bend but not break. And he said, this is the essence of your confederate group, unified in strength that you will be able to bend but not break mm-hmm. and you'll be able to maneuver and move through the world in strength with this unity. Mm-hmm. And it's those kind of images, that kind of conversation about that strength of togetherness, the, the strength of holding your hands together. We have, we even within our own seal now that we use for the Haudenosaunee, we have our 50 chiefs, which is also a belt, right? And each one of those chiefs is represented as holding hands that will hold up the Confederacy, right? So it's a wampum, 
But what each wampum bead represents is each one of those chiefs yeah. holding hands, mm -hmm. right? So this is an image that existed in the dialogue and conversation with all of the founding fathers during the formation of America, or what becomes America. Mm -hmm. So what happens next is what they're going through now. They're going through the chiefs, the 50 chiefs, and, uh, and one of them explains at some point that one was the wampum keeper. And he explains briefly what, what a wampum, um, what you know, the, the meaning and the role of wampum is as well. There's also a list of names, if you guys have any idea what they might, might mean on the back of one of, uh, of page 10. Andiago, Gago, and Onondaga. But then there's always reference to Buffalo, which I, my guess is, is maybe Buffalo Creek. I remember being out and I was presenting um, with the Seneca Nation um, and one of their council members had said something about like work that needed to be done because there was a, some point at which our Confederacy like gave wampums to the state and they're saying at that point they felt that's where like our Confederacy had like kind of like broken from each other and that in order to like bring us back together all on the same page would need to have that restored. I have no idea if this has anything related to any of this, but I just wanted to say that. Can you fill us in a little bit about the transfer of the, the council fire? Am I, am I mixing something up? Am I, am I wrong about this? But wasn't the, the council fire for a while transferred, is that correct? And returned? mid-19th century or something like that? I, I don't know. Okay. One, one, another one of those story gaps that, you know, other, I'm sure if my dad was still here, he'd have plenty of answers to fill in the gaps for that. But yeah. when Brant took those, all those members during the part of that Sullivan-Clinton campaign and breaking things up and took all those people out there, they also say that he took part of the council fire there, too, to maintain that community. Paulus references Mohawk military leader Joseph Brandt, one of the key figures of the American Revolution. Though not part of hereditary leadership, his connections to British officials and military abilities made him one of the most well-known indigenous men of his time to colonists and the British alike. There was a separation there. And then there's been other discussions throughout time about well, who will survive? And where, who, will, who will have the ability to survive and maintain the ceremonies and the structures? And so there's been numerous conversations about having leadership in both places. And, and now, now that there no longer is the fight of eminent danger and doom, like it was, like, like I said, you know, um, as legislation has changed, we're not fighting for our lives anymore. And so now <laughs> we're fighting amongst each other about who has authority, who has the fire, who has the leadership titles and all those things. Because now we all have knowledge. We all have history. We all have language. We all have ceremony. We all have culture. We all have the longhouse, yeah. right? But we're not figuring out how to communicate together because of the residuals of this trauma. Mm -hmm. And part of that story is that they, the um, reason part of the the, fire, the dual fires in different places is because um, 
we had to almost go underground with our ceremonies. We had, it had to be hidden. So a lot of the, the um, knowledge keepers um, took that and created that other fire because it had to be hidden because it was against the law for us to you know, practice our ceremonies and so forth. Our children were being taken to boarding schools. Yeah. Our elders were being attacked and, yeah. and their wampums were being stolen from their homes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, like what Neil was just saying. Onondaga social worker, Danielle Smith. What I see is that even among our own people and just um, the Confederacy in itself, um, we're, we're basically doing the job of what the colonizers wanted to do to us. Like, we're doing it to ourselves now because of all that unresolved trauma. Not saying everyone is doing it, but... That's why there's so much conflict, you know, because it's now it's more about greed and power, you know, and none of that, none of those values were ours, you know, that came from the colonizers. Okay, what's next? Just that's sort of the narrative of the, the the brief is they're going through all the roles. One of them is is, is the wampum keeper. They explain what the wampum keepers. Um, role is roughly and, and then they give a list of wampum keepers throughout uh, looks like as, as they call it here real quick um, from 100 years ago to 1881 so 1881 so they give this list of the wampum keepers and as you can see the last one in that list is Harry Webster and they go on like their attorney writing this brief um, goes on to explain that when Harry Webster died, Thomas Webster, his his son, sold, gave away uh, wampum belts. And the whole argument here is that he was never authorized. He was son of a wampum keeper, but he was not a wampum keeper. And um, so and the names that, that show up here that and I have to... Um, so what happened apparently in this... I got this from... Um, from this article here is really that uh, so Webster sold it to a General Henry B. Carrington, and who then tried to to sell it first like to the United States. Like the, um, he told Webster that he would carry it to uh, the United States National Museum, the Smithsonian Institution, essentially, and um, uh, that he would bring it there. But then he tried to sell it somewhere else. He tried to sell it to to New York State. The New York State. Um, was first not interested, so he found a private collector, uh, a Boston collector of antiquities, and um, who who bought it from him. And then from that private collector, the mayor of New York, Thatcher, John Boyd Thatcher, bought the wampum belts, and you know uh, had it in his private possession first, apparently, and um, and planned to to use them for the you know the World's Columbian Exhi- Exhibition in Chicago and in 1893, and this seems to be all the backstory to, to all this, to this, this whole uh, case here, essentially. And, um, uh, and the argument really is that uh, Thomas Webster was never authorized to give any of these wampum belts away. And I asked so specifically about the Hiawatha belt, and we talked about the Washington belt, because they are specifically named here, for example. They are, they are part of this. And um, so there's this list of the wampum keepers. And then there's an, another quote following, like from page 12 to 17, which is like, my guess, since he doesn't name anyone else, is again from Morgan. Um, 
it looks like, where he again explains, uh, yeah, he, that's actually where he talks about the, the transfer of the council fire, council fire, pardon my English, um, and um, to Buffalo Creek. But he, yeah, um, I found somewhere that returned in, in 1847 back to Onondaga. Yeah, look, they have got those. Did you see that up there? Oh, yeah. What do they have? It's my dad's chief name. The second uh, one from the bottom. Abraham Lafort. They have got those. Since the names are handed, you can also mention the, the names are handed down, right? From um, mm -hmm. they are part of the part of the title, right? Yeah, that one's yeah. the chief's yeah. title. Yeah. I wonder what the other ones if they have the same or not. I don't know. You guys would know more than I don't know. I don't know the title mm -hmm. names at Onondaga. All right, this is, this is the argument so far. He goes into describing what he calls the wampum archive at Onondaga as it had existed there. So what follows is essentially like a description of some of the belts and the, you know, what he calls the, 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 the wampum archive at Onondaga. And the argument about Webster follows on. Is it saying that up there how it says uh... It was rare, a site rarely allowed. Where do you see that? Uh, a site rarely allowed a white man. Yeah. She said, like, which your author, so we, I don't know, is it, is it, can it be Morgan still? Has had the satisfaction of seeing. And um, so, so it starts describing this, this, this archive essentially. Mm -hmm. And let me jump to 19, where they start to make the argument about. As you notice, he described it as a heart. I've also heard another reference to it as being a heart and not a tree. Well, did you see the part where he talked about a hand, too? I didn't get to read that bottom paragraph, but yeah. I saw something where he said, I said the heart and the hand or something. Yeah. Pete Jameson did a presentation in New York City a couple years ago, and I took the Plan of Scholars down there, and he was talking about how when the leaders presented the, the, the belt to the two people that were coming in, they held it. And they said that, that the middle image was a heart, and that it represented the heart of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. But that we have now turned it over mm -hmm. and refer to it as a flame and the tree of peace. So I wore, it, I, wore, I wore a belt that had it on there, and I wore it the other way. And everyone all day said, you have your belt on upside down. And all day I got to say no. It's the heart of General Jonas Clark from Auburn was allowed to go in, take photographs of the wampum. Okay, so he sent these along, and the photographs. This is the, the, the specific reference here in this case to the Hiawatha and the Washington Belt. Um, so, yeah, here it goes. So here they, here they, they state essentially the affidavits of Carrington and Sunburn put in. Where the defendants show that Carrington bought the belts from Thomas Webster, the son of Harry Webster, the then deceased wampum keeper. So Bridget. I think this is what they were talking about. Now that I look at it, when I, well, I was just talking about when I went out and I was there with the Senecas and they were talking about this date. I couldn't remember what the date was, but 1881. And they talk about the sale of the belts. Marking the moment. Yeah, and that they ended up in the hands of New York State. And I think that's it right there. Yeah. yeah. And here's on page 21, it is uh, 
where they make very clear that the Onondaga Nation had transferred the custodianship Who to the state. This, this is, um, his name is given the end, Edward Winslow Page is his name, uh, the attorney who, who wrote this, this piece. In 1898, the Onondagas elected the University of the State of New York Wampum Keeper. Um, see the copy of the record annexed. Um, the court will take judicial notice that the national government of the Onondaga Nation still continues. Hmm. And then he brings the points. Uh, probably um, precedent cases or whatever he cites there. Um, and then I do ask that the University of the State of New York be made the receiver, a clear title being shown. So it's the argument that is in the end, the Onondaga transferred the title to the Wampums by making the Wampum Keepers to the um, University of the State of New York. And um, the things are too precious to be left in the hands of, where are we, 21? So. Yeah, drum roll. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to read the next word. Oh. Uh, no, it's everyone defendant doing a litigation of three or four years. So this is more. Uh, and who's the defendant? Uh, it it could probably be Thatcher, the former mayor, who had bought them, and who had it still in his private possession. So, so what what they are arguing at least is um, they need to be transferred to the state authorities out of private possession um, because the Onondaga agreed to make uh, State University of New York. Um, the, the legal custodians. Was it like all of council that gave them the permission, the New York State, or? To make a reference to that, <clears throat> to that meeting? The, what was it, 1898 meeting? Then Council of the Nation <laughs> the homes of Daniel Laporte in Onondaga on the 26th day of February, right, 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 held prominent to call notice given to all the chiefs. So I guess those are all the present Chiefs, see how Shenandoah is spelled? Shenandoah. So what year are we looking at again? Eight. So it's at least 1898. Yeah. So you just, you just wonder what's going on at the time, right? For that many chiefs to say, okay, this is saying they're giving the right for New York State to be the custodian to be wampum keeper of were these belts. Well, no, did they, were they giving that or were they told? What's going on at the time to have that signing off of our wampum to be held by New York State? Oh, so there it is right there. Okay, yeah, this is the last page. This is the last page. Right, the Onondaga Nation does hereby sell to the University of the State of New York, all wampum for $500, and that the Sachem chiefs present all execute a bill of sale for the nation. That right there is the crux of this whole thing. That's that's the, what it boils down to. There's there's an, an, another piece here that um, Harriet Maxwell Converse, does that name? ring a bell at all or anything. She had a party in this. And I remember when the the wampum was returned and that whole battle was going on, um, I, I had some correspondence with um, Ray Gagne, 
who was at the state museum at the time. Renowned women's studies historian, Dr. Sally Rush-Wagner, teaches in the honors program at Syracuse University. Her papers are in Albany. And it's things like in 1890s, she wrote an editorial talking about how not to use the term tribe because that was a treaty-busting term. That that mm -hmm. that um, interesting. that treaties were not made with tribes; they were made with nations, and so it was really critical. And this is in the 1890s, critical to to call them nations, and um, and she was sort of a, a liaison with the the native community. You know, all the Mohawks that were there at the time. I remember a conversation with Alice Papineau. Um, about this, and Alice, this was a story that Alice told, and it was about wampum, and her aunt was a little girl, and and there was this white woman, and I, I assumed it might have been Harriet Maxwell Converse, and then it was um, Alice's aunt uh, at the other side of the table, and or, or maybe it was her aunt's mother, and I think it was Alice's aunt. She was looking at this, and she said that it was the wampum, some wampum, and that the whether it was her aunt's mother or whoever it was, put the wampum across the table, and then Harriet Maxwell or or Harriet Maxwell Converse put money across the table. But but Alice said her the way she heard the story was that there was no sense that that was a sale of it because you couldn't sell it, that that was a gift. Mm -hmm. But there's also documents, and I can, I can dig for these too, um, about Harriet Maxwell Converse being, I think, an agent in some way in this in the transfer of some wampum, um, and at the time when that wampum was returned, I think Ray Gagne thought that Harriet Maxwell Converse was uh, critical in the process, mm -hmm. um, and she's really mixed. So, you know, she was. She was an ally, and I also think she was not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. And in that way, she's like a, a, a model for us to, <laughs> to watch and look at and think, you know, damn, you've got to be careful. Mm -hmm. Part of the um, conversation I heard when the belts were returned is they were talking about that New York State um, told um, the Haudenosaunee, whoever was there present at that time, that they had the capabilities of preserving these for a long time, and that's what they were going to do for, for the Haudenosaunee was preserve them. So we need preservation in the yeah. physical sense. Yeah. Was the mm -hmm. They were supposed to preserve them. Yeah. Well, you know, just as a side note, right? So we're talking about how does this conversation come around, right? A former Haudenosaunee promise scholar. Uh, who started, who graduated a few years ago, started making replica belts 
right? And while he was doing that, he was really looking into this journey of the belts, and he was saying, well, we have to start bringing those belts out because the reason that, you know, he goes, you can look at the way that the belt looks now, it needs to be repaired. And the belt looks like our Confederacy, it needs to be repaired. And I was like, whoa, that's a pretty interesting thought, you know, to think about. And had never really given it a thought other than that, right? But he was like, yeah, we need to bring this out. And we've been fractured, just like our belt has been. Well, and that's the whole thing, right, with the wampum keepers is that they repair them. Yeah. So that does, you know, the belt stay in good condition. So like New York State thinking, you know, oh, we're doing this great, you know, effort of preserving them for you. It wasn't necessary because that's the responsibility people have in order to, you know, take care of it. So if it starts to, you know, fray or fall apart in some areas to go back and mend it and fix it and then keep those stories alive with all of the belts. Because imagine with the belts that New York State had, they didn't know the story with every bead, right, that went. And so therefore you have how many years of, what, how did you say? 90 something years of- 90 years. A broken, like, history. Knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. Like stealing the Library of Congress and keeping it hostage for a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or beyond the Library of Congress. Yeah. 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 Can you just show me that one last Sorry. page? I just want to just see really quickly. I think it's uh, open still. Um, yeah. Were those like hand signatures on the last? Um, the very last image. What's that one? Yeah, okay. Oh, it's like the signatures of the mm -hmm. attorney. Yeah. yeah. And then also the Onondaga Nation. Uh, Stating on there as plaintiff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just, just to show you who, where the attorney identifies himself. Just to put that in here too, real quick. Uh, ah, Converse. Ha! Harriet Maxwell Converse. Yeah. <laughs> There's your story. <laughs> you need your yeah. There's a proof. Yeah. Okay. All right. Awesome. Let's awesome. It comes Thank together. you, Alice. And Sally. The Land You're On is a production of Access Audio, a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, Bianca Cayella Breed, Neil Paulus, and Jim O'Connor. Post production by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit The Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.